There's no shortage of introductory books on witchcraft on the market. Whether you're looking at older authors like DJ Conway or Silver Ravenwolf, more contemporary stuff from Matt Aron or John Beckett, or specialized books from authors like Byron Ballard or even Keldon, you have a decent selection to choose from. But what if you are stuck in that spot between beginner and specialist? You want to advance your craft, but most sources advise you to practice, practice, practice. There's an old adage that says practice makes perfect, but that is not entirely true. If you are practicing the wrong way, you exert a lot of effort with little to no improvement. Your art will progress more efficiently if you know how and what to practice. It feels like this is part of the elitism of magic. Those who came before us developed and grew the hard way, so now it's expected that we should suffer the way that they did. But suffering for your art is not necessary. So where do you turn when mainstream titles leave you hanging? The answer comes from today's author, Aidan Walker. His books are not for the beginner but they also aren't hypo-esoteric tomes that would confound a newbie. They provide guidance for this middle ground of magic and presents it in a way that you can practice and improve without being bogged down by path-specific dogma. There's no threefold law here. Tonight, we're going to tackle the book Six Ways, Approaches and Entries for Practical Magic. I'm your host, Jason and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! Before we get started, I have to thank my patrons, whose support helps to make this show a reality. Specifically, I have to thank my highest tier patron, Samantha Shaver, who has been with the show since its inception. If you would like to help contribute, you can do so at patreon.com, where you can get access to extended episodes for as little as $3 a month. Not only that, but all patrons who join the Esoteric Archive get early access to episodes for as little as $1 per month. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. I'll be honest, I had not heard of Wachter going into this. His books are self-published under Red Temple Press, and I am admittedly a bit of a book snob, so my opinion of self-published books is generally pretty low. I admit my bias, and I'm conscious of it, and I'm working to change my perspective. Granted, books like this one are making that change much, much easier. Before we even get into the content of the book, let's look into what some big-name practitioners are saying. Quote, Rarely do I find a book that is interesting, clever, and wise all at the same time, but Six Ways is. The teachings are both radically inclusive and no-nonsense, without any derision to any other tradition or path, as you might find in some serious occult texts. That review was from Christopher Penzak, 
author of over 20 books on magic, and founder of the Inner Temple of Witchcraft. Author Matt Aron says, quote, Walker is one of the most brilliant minds in the field of modern magic. Matt is an author, teacher, psychic witch, and high priest of the sacred fires tradition of witchcraft. He runs a blog entitled For Puck's Sake on Patheos.com and has a column in the magazines Modern Witch and Horns. So when this guy gives praise, it's well earned. So who is this Aiden guy anyway? It seems that he doesn't like to talk about himself too much, which I totally sympathize with. In his own words, he's a talismanic jeweler who has been involved in magic since 1982. His books focus on the practice of the craft as a set of skills that can be developed rather than innate talents that must be inherited or granted to the seeker. He also says that he was receiving so many questions about his jewelry and his process that he decided that it would just be easier to write a book. He quickly admits that that was an erroneous assumption. He wrote six ways with the philosophy that magic is a science. It's trial and error. Experimentation. Each time you do something, you examine the results and consider how you arrived at that outcome. Then, you make changes to improve the results. Beyond that, you are establishing a working relationship with the spirits of the land to effect tangible change in our world. He even reiterates this in his dedication. Quote, I write this book as a gift to the spirits of the field and as an aid to those who seek to know and work with them. When you get to the main content of the book, Wachter asks you to focus and narrow down what drives you and specifically what changes you intend to make. That's a tall order for a lot of us, but don't worry, he has a spell for that. It's a fairly simple spell, but it's a good way to ease someone into this method of doing magic. On a 3 inch by 3 inch sheet of paper, write down your intent. Read it aloud three times, kiss the paper three times, breathe on it three times, and say aloud, as it was, as it is, as it shall be. Fold the paper in half towards you and place it in the back of this book. This spell is a primer that teaches you to focus your spoken and unspoken intentions and desires. Why is this important? Even in our mundane lives, we are influenced by our unconscious mind. More so, we will do things a certain way simply because that is how we've always done them. Wachter elaborates that discipline and habit are essential to magical practices. He has an assignment to help you enhance these traits. His example is quite amusing, but quite genius in that it trains you to develop habits consciously. He advises you to pick something completely mundane, and then change your view and reaction to it. For him, he chose nickels and dimes. Pretty common coins, right? The change he made, no pun intended, was in how he reacted to them. 
Nickels were horrible, evil, toxic things that couldn't even be touched. Dimes, on the other hand, were sacred items, precious objects that must be hoarded. That seems silly, right? But through repetition, his views changed and his reactions became unconscious. It became habit. Being able to affect change in your own thinking is the first step to being able to affect change in the wider world. You are making the unconscious tangible. You're making it real. This is only one part, though. Now that you can shape and influence your own mind, now you need to change how you perceive the world. I'm not talking about your visual perception, but more how you conceptualize the world around you. Let's talk about spirit a bit. In all honesty, spirit is a vague term. It can refer to everything from enthusiasm to the integral animating force in living objects. We're going to look at two specific definitions of spirit. The first is an entity comprised entirely of energy that embodies abstract concepts. The other is an energy force imbued in all objects, both living and inanimate. I'm going to skip the first type because it will be discussed later on. Now, this concept is nothing new. It is the foundation of many worldviews and many cultures. It's been labeled animism, panpsychism, ka, chi, and a broad spectrum of terms incorporating many of the same elements and beliefs. The basic idea is that everything in this 3D physical world is also imbued with energy of varying degrees. I can already hear someone out there saying, Are you telling me that this piece of gravel from my driveway is alive? Well, no. Yes. Sort of. Really, it's complicated. As we heard in Season 2, Episode 5, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, it's not easy to define life or what it means to be alive. The very term has changed since it was first coined. At one time, mobility was a requirement for life. As we perceive it now, plants are indeed alive. But we don't see trees uprooting themselves and walking about, do we? So is that piece of gravel alive? Probably not in a way that we recognize, no. But that doesn't mean it doesn't still have spirit. While most objects have spirit, it's not quite the same as having a soul. But in some cases, it could be. I'm getting a bit too far into the weeds, though, so let's step back on track here. While objects can have spirit, it doesn't mean that they do when you find them. Nor does it mean that it couldn't be given more spirit. An example that most people would be familiar with is the modern practice and use of crystals. Crystal users talk about cleansing and charging their stones pretty frequently. Ideally, it means that they are removing any lingering energy and adding the energies that they choose. Think of it like a cup without a lid. 
You can add stuff to it and pour stuff out, but it has a finite capacity. If you want a full cup of coffee, you first need to empty the cup of anything remaining inside and probably wash it out. Beyond that, certain vessels are better for holding certain energies. Back to the cup metaphor, we tend to put coffee in ceramic mugs, right? A metal tumbler would physically hold the coffee, sure, but the metal would heat up and make it uncomfortable for us to use. Taking that metaphor one step further, you could potentially use a plate to hold coffee, but it could get messy pretty easily, and really, it just isn't that efficient. The same could be said for basically all things in existence, except with spirit, not coffee. Although, if you could imbue objects with the spirit of coffee, I know several people who would heavily invest in it. Ace and Knight, I'm looking at you, buddy. All of this leads into the next subject, the two worlds. There's not too much to describe here. It's basically the concept that there is a spirit world that overlaps our own, but it's inhabited by non-physical, energy-based entities. Spirits, but with a capital S. Why is this important? Because this is the primary source for the energy that is used to fuel magic. Physics tells us that energy can't be created or destroyed, right? So it has to come from somewhere. Wachter incorporates spirit work, trance, and I guess the best way to describe it is astral travel? Okay, let's say that you want to fill a bunch of water balloons. It would be difficult to do this in a desert, but it would be much easier near a water source. It would be exponentially easier if you had a faucet. So if you're trying to perform magic, it will be easier to do so near the source of magical energy. If the spirit world is the water, then spirit, with a capital S, is the faucet. Albeit a living, sometimes sentient faucet. Look, I know I'm relying on a lot of metaphors in this review, but... It's the most efficient way to summarize the content. Otherwise, I would find myself just reading the book to you. Now that we know the why and the where of this, we need to know how to get there. As you've probably guessed, it requires trance or meditation. I can hear some of you cringing already. But Jason, I've tried and I just can't meditate. Okay. I mean, it's not easy, but there's also more than one way to do it. It's not just sitting quietly with your thoughts. So many people think that meditation and trance require a monastic level of discipline. Sure, that's the best known example, but you can enter trance in many, many ways. Have you ever been vibing out to music so deeply that you lose track of time? Have you ever been so engrossed in a book that you look at the clock and suddenly it's 2 a.m.? That is trance. The trick is being able to replicate that consciously. Remember earlier how we talked about making conscious decisions into habit? This is one way to apply those techniques for magical use. Practice and remember the ways that you get into trance 
and eventually you'll be able to do it quicker and quicker until you can enter that state at will. A lot of you have probably heard of the tree meditation, but for those who haven't, it's a method of transinduction through guided visualization. You imagine yourself to be a tree, and the guide leads you through a series of awareness exercises in which you feel your feet as roots and your arms as branches. Granted, it's a bit more detailed than that, but you get the idea. Wachter uses this exercise in the book, but he expands on it in several creative ways. Besides just turning into a tree, you can use this tree as a waypoint, using it to ascend through use of the branches and descend by way of the roots. This is one of the truly genius bits of Wachter's methods. You begin with one technique, but then you make a small change just to see what happens. What if you step away from the tree during the tree meditation? What if you climb the tree? What if you dug down into the roots? What would you find? What spirits exist there? What types of energy will you gain access to? He certainly stresses for you to be safe, but he also says to have fun and explore. If what we do isn't fun and rewarding, then why do we even do it? Once you have practiced the tree visualization, it's time to move on to the next step. Now, I've heard these called various things in different traditions, but the way Wachter describes it is simply the watchtower. Here's where it gets fun. Picture a tower. What does your tower look like? It's completely up to you, because this is your tower. You walk up to the front door. What do you see? What does your door look like? What material is it made from? What is the wall of the tower like? Is there a doorknob, a handle, or a lever to get in? Is there even a door knocker? When you open the door, how does it open? Does it swing towards you, or does it open inward? Maybe it's more like a Star Trek door that slides into the wall. Again, this is your tower, so you get to decide this. Step inside. In the main room of this tower, there is a stairwell going upwards, and a stairwell leading into the basement. Which would you like to follow? What does that stairwell look like? Stone? Wood? Magical energy? Is there a safety railing, or do you just risk plummeting to your death as you use them? Each set of stairs has exactly nine steps. Follow those steps to get to the room beyond. For this next part, I will read Wachter's words directly from the book. The upper room has a table in it with a candle on it, a stick of incense in a holder, and a box of wooden matches. Greet the room and make an offering to it by lighting the candle with the matches and then lighting the incense from the candle. The lower room has a stone tomb in it and a stone table which is set at waist height. On this table is an unlit candle, a stick of incense in a holder, and a box of wooden matches.
greet the room and make an offering to it by lighting the candle with the matches and then lighting the incense from the candle. Revisit these rooms as you desire, and in time you can change them to suit your nature. Perhaps there are windows in the upper room from which you can see the worlds beyond the watchtower. Perhaps there are tunnels branching out from the lower chamber, leading to other realms. This is a pretty cool concept, isn't it? The idea is that when you are in a trance, you can enter whichever room is applicable for your task at hand. Do you want to do some scrying or divination? Use the upper room. Are you looking to do some necromancy or maybe construct a curse? Then maybe you should use the tomb. Granted, these are just the examples that he gives in the book. Once you're used to constructing your watchtower, you can structure it however you like. That's the beauty of this practice. Even though it uses the same formula, everyone's tower will be different. When I first read the title of this book, I thought six ways described six techniques or six methods. No. Six ways refers to the nexus at which we exist in this world. We have the four cardinal directions above and below. At the center point of where these meet, we find ourselves. During meditation, we can move ourselves to these cardinal points to get to specific destinations. In many modern practices, or any practice that utilizes classical Western world alchemical structures, you will find archetypal elements in specific directions. For Wachter's purpose, you will find earth in the north, air in the east, fire in the south, and water in the west. The world above is, well, above. And you can probably guess where the world below is. As Wachter says, quote, Part of the value of this kind of practice and map is that it can be useful to have a place for the powers that we interact with to dwell, so that we know where to go if we wish to visit them. End quote. Granted, this depiction is a way for us to conceptualize the location of specific realms. As he says in the book, the elements are not anchored to a physical cardinal direction. It's simply a way for us, who live in the 3D world, to visualize what's known as a location. Magically, these locations are more of a state of mind or an abstract concept. Basically, we are so used to physically moving our bodies to get to a new place that we use directions as a mental shortcut when we want to move from one plane of existence to another. There's a lot more information on the practice of meditation, astral travel, and building and directing energy, but I want to get to one last aspect of this book, sigils. Sigils are abstract designs that encompass a concept, are imbued with energy, and then put into use for a specific purpose. You can make a sigil for literally anything. Even as Wachter may or may not have done in his youth, 
you can create a sigil whose purpose is to get you laid. Even though this may seem like an immature, short-sighted desire, it does serve as a good example for the rephrasing and proper direction of sigils. In this example, Wachter wasn't very specific, so he was getting a lot of attention from people that he wasn't attracted to, both men and women. Once he focused and narrowed the scope of his sigil, things went considerably better for him. The basic idea for the visual design of a sigil is pretty simple. Write down a word or phrase that encompasses what you hope to achieve. While it's not a hard and fast rule, Wachter does advise that sigils work better if you phrase the petition in a positive way. Saying, I want my ex-boyfriend Jimmy to stop stalking me, could work. But what works better is phrasing it as, Jimmy fell in love with a guy from Florida and moved there with him. Wachter admits that he doesn't exactly know why this works, but in all the sigils that he has made over the years, positively phrased ones tend to work the best. Personally, I think it has to do with the magic taking the path of least resistance. If the end result is something that all parties desire, or at least something that they don't oppose, it makes it easier for the spell to take hold. Once you have your phrase, write it down on a sheet of paper. Now cross out any letter that is duplicated. This should eliminate a lot of them. Next, cross out any of the vowels. Finally, cross out any letters that are mirrors of other letters or whose shape is contained in those letters. For example, if you have both an M and a W, or a W and a V, you can cross one of them out. This should leave you with about five to six letters. Here's where the artistic part comes into play. Using those remaining letters, arrange them in a pattern where it creates a design. Overlap elements that share common lines. For example, you could combine the capital letter T with the capital letter L by overlapping the center line of each. You can turn letters and rearrange them on the paper however you like. The only rule is to use the letters that remain. Once you have a very basic design, which probably looks like stick figures at this point, you can artistically enhance your work. Did you turn the capital letter D on its side so it looks like the rising sun? Give it a few little sun rays. Does that capital C look like a dinosaur mouth to you? Well, give it a couple little teeth. The idea is to take the design, which once incorporated letters from the alphabet, and change it so it no longer resembles individual letters. Now, it's an abstract art design created with specific intent. Intent that is a secret known only to you. After you are practiced at making sigils, Wachter has instructions on how to take this to the next level and create something called a servitor. Basically, you create a sigil for a specific ongoing task. Something like, make me aware of new esoteric occult books. Now, the sigil isn't going to work 
as much as it serves as a help-wanted sign. Spirits who are suited to the task at hand will see the sigil and start to fulfill the task. Granted, they will want payment for their work, so you have to be clear about what you offer in exchange and how often you will deliver on this debt. You can set these rules wherever you choose, but you know where works best? Utilizing one of the rooms in your watchtower. There's a lot more information in this book that I haven't even touched upon yet, including divination, making talismans, kundalini energy, magical cleansing, warding your home, crossroads, etc. For a book that is only 157 pages, he covers a lot of material in a concise and informative way. The chapter order may not always make sense, and they seem to be grouped together in a loose bundle of concepts, but this makes the book read more like a lecture than an instruction manual. His writing style is conversational, and he conveys his points pretty well. There were only a few times where I had to go back and reread a section, but really, that could have just been me attempting to read while I was tired. Wachter covers the basics, but only enough to get to the more advanced information. Like I said in the beginning, this is an intermediate level book. It's not a survey, but it's also not a specialized text. It's written for people who have figured out that they want to do something to begin practicing magic, but aren't really sure about the details. As the subtitle of this book says, this is practical magic. If any of this sounds interesting to you, pick up a copy of Six Ways by Aidan Wachter. As always, I'll have a link to the book in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. You can find more of their stuff at bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. And hey, if you play drums, they're currently looking for a drummer. Patrons, stick around after the credits, where I'll be talking about Wachter's instructions for reclaiming your sense of self, which is a pretty interesting crossover between psychology and magic. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. It's time once again to open the Esoteric Archive. Even though this is Chapter 7 of the book, Wachter suggests that all new practitioners follow this practice first.